have a seat. Thank you, worship team. Tyler, you're no longer allowed to speak on stage. I'm kidding. We love Tyler. Tyler's one of our elders here. Just, just a funny story I thought of as, as, as he was talking. Both of our sons fight at the same jiu-jitsu gym uh, in town. And so the, the leaders, one time Tyler was telling them that I'm the pastor here. And they said, he's a pastor? And they said, said this will really blow your mind. I'm one of the elders there. And so I think their, their jaws just hit the floor. I'm not sure what that says about what kind of church we are. He's an elder and I'm the lead pastor. But here, here you are. You're welcome. All right. I want to say welcome uh, to those of you in the room with us. I want to say welcome as well uh, to our online church family joining us uh, via live stream. So happy that you're here with us this morning as well. Before we dive into our message, just a reminder for parents. And so uh, if you're a mom, dad, dad, stepmom, stepdad of little ones, so preschool age, elementary age, just want to make you aware that today is the last day to sign up for back-to-school uh, barbecue luncheon next Sunday. That's September the 11th, and so uh, if you haven't registered, you can pull your phone out right now. You can scan that QR code that will take you to the sign-up. Alternatively, you can go out to the preschool hallway, and uh, our, our staff will get you uh, signed up there. But again, that's next Sunday. Uh, we're going to feed you some barbecue. If you sign up today, we'll take care of your kids for you. And uh, Miss Amber, our kids' ministry director, is going to give us some tools to help us disciple our kids Monday through Saturday, right? We want Sunday really just to be a culmination of the discipleship that's happening at home with mom and dad throughout the week. So we're going to pray over our kids as we start a brand new school year and get some, some tools and some equipping uh, to help us disciple our kids well at home. And so I hope that you'll plan to be with us if you're a parent of a little one uh, next Sunday right after uh, this service, the 11 o'clock uh, service. Now, we are, we are back in our uh, series called We Believe, uh, exploring the Apostles' Creed, and we're really about halfway. This is the halfway point uh, of the series today. Now, if you've uh, missed the last few weeks, maybe perhaps this is your first Sunday, uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, is one of the oldest creeds in church history, perhaps the oldest. Uh, Christians have been confessing this creed in worship gatherings just like the one that we're in right now for the better part of 1800 years and although it was not written by the apostles it summarizes all that the apostles taught uh, which is why we call it the apostles creed uh, it has been used historically as the primary discipleship tool in the church right so if you think back a uh, thousand years ago two thousand years ago you couldn't go to like lifeway.com or, or christianbooks.com and get some discipleship stuff right so this was really the primary discipleship tool so if you decided to follow jesus you would get a mentor someone who had been walking with jesus you'd sit down you'd memorize this creed together and you would explore what it means for uh, your life as a follower of jesus just a super helpful summary of the entire biblical narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the return of Jesus. And so far, what we've said in the creed is this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then last week we said, suffered under, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And that brings us to the very next line in the creed, which will be on the screens for you right now. It says this. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, this line has uh, generated more controversy uh, than any other line. I've received the most questions from you guys. Some of y'all have been waiting for this uh, week, and, and I've just been saying, hey, hold off. We're going to spend a whole, whole week on it, uh, even my own kids uh, in, in my own house. Like, man, Dad, what's the stuff about Jesus? 
uh, going to hell? Are you, are you starting a cult? And so uh, the answer is, is no. And um, so what we're going to try to do is unpack 2,000 years of mystery in the next 35 minutes. And uh, we'll either accomplish that or I'm about to confuse all of you and you'll never come back. And so we'll find out in about 35 minutes uh, which one of those we accomplish. And so uh, to that end, let's, let's pause for a moment. Let's pray before we step into the Lord's word and ask God to help us and guide us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you, and uh, I think for, for many of us, we would just have to confess that so often the world around us seems chaotic. It seems out of control. I would guess for many of us, even sitting in the room watching online, uh, that our, our very own lives have felt chaotic and out of control over the last week. And so, God, would you remind us that our, our firm foundation in this world is not a relationship, it's not a political party, it's not our financial bank account, it's none of those things, but our foundation, our sure, steady foundation in this life is the rock that is Jesus Christ and your word that guides us. And so, Holy Spirit, we would invite you into this place right now. We ask that you would be present, that you would be among your people, that you would take these ancient words in the scriptures, that you would take these ancient truths, that you would breathe life into them that you would help us apply them to our hearts and our minds and our spirits in a way that would make us more like your son, Jesus, for his glory. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. Amen. All right, let me start by asking you a question. For some of you, you maybe have considered this question. For others of you, maybe you haven't ever, never even thought of it. But I just want to ask you, where, where was Jesus between uh, the de his death on the cross on Friday, Good Friday, and, and when he resurrected from, from the grave on Easter Sunday morning. So between Friday, his death, Sunday, his resurrection, where was Jesus and what was he doing? Was he just, uh, was he just taking a, a nap in the, the, the cool, empty tomb? Was he just, was he just resting or was there, was there actually more going on during that time frame? Now, as Christians, I think we're pretty good at celebrating Good Friday. We're pretty good at celebrating the cross, right? We got it, we got it hang, hanging on our wall, uh, lit up. We're great at celebrating that. We, we definitely are great at celebrating the empty tomb, right? You come here on Easter uh, Sunday morning, and this place will be packed out, standing room only. And so we do a, a great job of celebrating Good Friday. We do a great job of celebrating Easter Sunday. But what about Saturday? It's kind of like the, the forgotten part of this this whole sequence of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, isn't it? Have you ever thought about it? Where was Jesus? What was he doing? Uh, Michael Bird, a, uh, an Aussie scholar and theologian, calls uh, Holy Saturday, some call it Silent Saturday, the, the most misunderstood and neglected doctrine in the entire church, and yet one of the most necessary for, for a full-orbed understanding of the Christian worldview and the work of Jesus on the cross. And so I'll just ask it again. Where, where did Jesus go and what did he do between the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection? Did he really go to hell, as the Apostles' Creed says? Now, I want to give you just kind of, for the sake of time, there, there's multiple views. I just want to give you the three uh, most common views this morning. I'm going to tell you which ones fall within, within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. So you can follow Jesus, believe the Bible, and believe these views. I'm going to tell you which ones I believe fall outside the realm of biblical orthodoxy. And then I'm going to tell you where I land, and then we're going to shift over to the resurrection. And that will be our game plan for the morning. So let me give you the three most common views. The first most common view, uh, you will find this view in some Catholic circles. You would find this view in what I would call uh, some hyper-charismatic circles, uh, crazy guys like uh, Kenneth Copeland. Uh, you, you may have seen him on YouTube. He's the guy that tried to blow away COVID. Y'all remember that? 
the COVID, be gone. <sighs> right? I, actually, I looked that up on YouTube this morning just to kind of refresh myself. I'm like, bro, if I didn't have COVID before, I think I, you just gave it to me. Right? <laughs> I came through my screen. Now I'm now in, in, infected. So, so not all Catholics, but, but some Catholics would hold to view number one. Uh, some hyper-charismatics like this nut job, Kenneth Comeland, would also hold to view number one, and that is that Jesus literally went to hell. Right? So he, he literally went to the eternal, uh, fiery uh, place of torment. And, and the reasoning is not all that, that crazy, actually. The reasoning is this. If Jesus really was going to pay for everything that we deserve as sinners, that would have to include suffering death and hell, because isn't that what the Bible say, says we deserve? Don't we, as sinners, as rebels against a perfect and holy God, deserve to suffer, die, and be separated from God for eternity in a place called hell? So, so if this is what Jesus did, if he was really going to truly pay for everything that we owe, Jesus had to suffer, he had to die, and then he had to go to hell to take on all that we deserved. Now, that, that, again, on the surface, that kind of makes sense. There's only one problem with that view. Do you know what that problem is? There's zero scriptural support for it. Like, I spent a lot of hours studying this week, and there's absolutely zero evidence of this particular view that Jesus actually went to hell and suffered a torment in the flames of hell. So no, Jesus did not go to the place of eternal torment reserved for Satan and his demons and all those who oppose God. I would argue that this view falls outside the bounds of biblical and historical orthodoxy. So I would encourage you uh, not to accept this particular view. Now here's the, here's the second view that's probably most common. This is, again, this would be an orthodox Christian view. You would be safe to, to believe this. This was popularized by reformers, guys like John Calvin. This is the predominant view, particularly of reformed churches today. So like our Presbyterian friends, reformed Baptists, even I would say probably a lot of churches like New Life, community churches, non-denominational churches would probably hold to this view. And the second view is that Jesus experienced hell on the cross metaphorically. And so as Jesus suffered on the cross, as he took on the weight of all of our sin, as the Father turned his face from the Son, again, because he's perfect, he cannot be uh, in the presence of sin. And so when Jesus took on all of our sin, the Father turned his face from the Son for the first time in eternity. That's why Jesus says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in that very moment, metaphorically speaking, Jesus experienced the same exact thing that you and I would experience if we were in hell. And what is hell if it's not separation from God and all that is good? Because all that is good comes from God. So this would be the, the, the second view. This would be, a, for Jesus, certainly a, a hellish experience. Uh, there's ample scriptural support for this view. This is probably the predominant view in the modern-day American evangelical church. So if you were to talk to most pastors and churches around here, most elder boards, this is probably the view that 90% of them uh, would take. And again, it's biblical. You're safe to believe this, that Jesus descended into hell, experienced it metaphorically on the cross. There's a, there's a third view uh, that's actually pretty common as well. This is also, also a biblically orthodox view. Uh, you would be in good company to believe this view. It's an ancient view. It actually seems to be the predominant view in the early church. So the, the earliest Christians seem to hold to view number three. Uh, a lot of early church fathers and theologians, guys like Origen, uh, took this view, held this view. And that is that Jesus descended to the underworld or the place of the dead between the cross and the res resurrection to proclaim his victory over sin, death, and hell. 
Now, this, this realm of the, the dead is spoken of quite often, actually, in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. Again, just means the place of the dead. Uh, and, and actually, the Apostles' Creed, in its earliest form, uh, when, when it was written in Greek, when it was written in Latin, actually used the word Hades instead of hell. So the way that it originally read is that Jesus descended into Hades, or the place of the dead. It wasn't until the creed was translated, I think, wrongly by English translators that we translated the word from Hades to hell, which has been the source of some confusion. Now, if, if I could, I, I would invite you just to kind of nerd out with me for a moment, because I really, uh, man, I, I get into all this supernatural stuff uh, in the Bible, especially stuff that's not uh, taught very much, like this doctrine uh, in the church. Um, but when it comes to the underworld, or the place of the dead, Hades, Sheol, whatever you want to call it, scholars will note, scholars that have studied this intensely, that there seems to be three distinct compartments of Hades, or the place of the dead. One compartment that seems to contain a, a segment of rebellious demons. Now, let me, let me show you what I mean. This will be on the screens for you. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter writing says this, for Christ suffered once for sins. Now, again, that should be, I think, a great comfort for us, right? Is there anything more comforting for people who are suffering to know that we do not suffer alone, that we have a Savior who has suffered with us and for us? We could spend the next 30 minutes just breaking down those five or six words there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? This is the, the great exchange. We talked about this last week, right? Jesus in my place as a sinner, Jesus in your place, that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel. Being, and now, here's where it gets really fascinating. Being put to death in the flesh. So we're, we're now uh, on Good Friday. We're looking at the death of Jesus on the cross. We looked at this last week. But made alive in the spirit. So, so he's, not, he's not just taking a, a nap in the tomb, right? When he, when he is put to death in the flesh, he's made alive in the spirit. Now, now what did he do? What, what did he do while, while he was alive in the spirit? Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Now, we could spend uh, literally two or three hours just unpacking this passage. It's one of the most contended passages in the New Testament. There are a couple interpretations of this verse that really all hinge on this question who are these spirits that Jesus went and preached to after he experienced death on the cross and he was made alive in the spirit? Who are these spirits that he went and preached to? Now, again, we don't have time to do a deep dive on this. I, I wish we did because I totally, like I said, I nerd out on this. But let me just tell you what it doesn't mean, what it can't mean, and then I'll tell you what I think it, it does mean. I do not believe, as some have suggested, that this verse indicates that Jesus went and preached to humans who have died. So he, he's, I don't believe that he's going down to preach to human spirits who have died, and he's giving them a second chance to believe the gospel, repent, and go to heaven. Why do I not believe that that's the case? Well, Hebrews 9 is very, very clear when it says, it is appointed for a man to die once, and then what? And then the judgment. In other words, there, there are no second chances after death, which is why it's so critical that you and I wrestle with the claims of Jesus right now while we're alive on planet Earth because it will absolutely, I believe, affect your destiny into eternity. No second chances after death. It is appointed for a man or woman to die once, then the judgment. So it cannot mean that Jesus went and preached to uh, human beings who had died to give them a, a second chance. It doesn't believe that. We also know that these spirits are not human spirits because scholars tell us that the Greek word used here for spirits is exclusively used in the Bible for spiritual or demonic beings, never for human beings. 
So Jesus is not going to preach to human beings. He's not giving them a second chance to follow him. I take this to mean that Jesus went to the, the uh, uh, demonic realm, the place of the dead, Hades, whatever you want to call it, and proclaimed his victory between the time of his death on the cross and his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. Now, this was the most common view held in the early church, again, by uh, famous church theologians and church fathers like Origen and others. Other passages that seem to corroborate this view of, of demons being kept in prison or Hades until the day of judgment would be 2 Peter 2.4, Jude chapter 6. Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about the descent of Jesus, so you can go and, and study all of those things uh, on your own time. But that seems to be one compartment of the underworld, Hades, uh, the place of the dead, whatever you want to call it, a place where demonic spirits are in prison, not all demonic spirits, but, uh, but a group of demonic spirits are in prison. They're awaiting their judgment. But what about segment or compartment two and three? There's this fascinating story in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 16. If you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with it. If not, it probably sound like a crazy story, but there's a, this incredible account that gives us a picture of the other two compartments of the underworld, right? And so there's this, this poor man named Lazarus. Who, who loves God and follows God, and he sits outside the gate of a, a rich man who opposes God and begs him, and the rich man kind of ignores him his entire life. And so, again, we have a poor man who's righteous, who loves God. We have a rich man who's unrighteous, who opposes God. They both die. And so they, they, the story tells us that Lazarus goes to, to paradise, and he's actually by Abraham's side, as some people might say Abraham's bosom in some translations. So he dies, and he goes to paradise, while the rich man goes to a place of torment. And there's a stunning scene in Luke chapter 16 where the rich man calls out to Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, please get Lazarus just to dip the tip of his finger in water and come and cool my tongue because I am in agony in these flames. And this is a, a paraphrase, but Abraham basically says, basically says to him, sorry, bro, there's a, there's a big chasm that's been placed between us. You can't come to us, and we can't come to you. And so the rich man says, well, will, will you at least send Lazarus back to my five brothers so that they might repent and believe and not end up in the same place? And Abraham says, he, they, have, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. They have the Old Testament. If they won't believe the Bible, they would not even believe if, if Lazarus was to come back from the dead and tell them. Just this incredible, fascinating story. So it seems like in the realm of the dead, you have both a place of paradise for the righteous, those who place their faith in the Messiah, and also a place of torment for the unrighteous. They're separated, and yet it appears they can see each other, they can hear each other, they apparently can even have conversations. And so three compartments in the underworld, or Hades, clearly found in Scripture, a place of imprisonment for disobedient demonic powers, a place of paradise for the saints, and a place of judgment for those who oppose God. So here's the, here's the view in this third uh, and final view. Here's the picture uh, of this view. The kingdom of darkness is throwing a party when Jesus dies on the cross, right? The, the demons are high-fiving each other. Yeah, baby! We did it, right? The DJ's spinning the music. Now, I'm not sure what, what kind of music are they playing in hell. I don't know. Country music, maybe? I don't know. Well, uh, let's just say heavy metal, right? So they're, they're jamming out. The DJ's rocking some heavy metal. He's spinning the tunes. Man, they're sipping on their pumpkin spice lattes like demons do, right? They're having the time of their lives. And all of a sudden, Jesus strolls in and sits down. You just kind of picture the music stops. They put down the pumpkin spice lattes, and Jesus goes, What's up, boys? 
Just wanted to let you know I just conquered death. Now I hold the keys to life, death, and Hades. My victory is final. See you on judgment day, suckas. And he walks out, resurrects, drops the mic. All right? Now that's, that's the picture. That's the picture that we get in view three. Jesus descends to the place of the dead. He gives a victory speech. He rises from the grave. He drops the mic on history, right? Now, I'm just telling you, after studying this for so many hours this week and even uh, previous weeks, I studied it a lot when we went through the First Peter series, I am most compelled by this last view. Now, I think you can believe in the second view. I think you can believe in the third view and be fine in the realm of Christian orthodoxy. I am most compelled by this final view. Uh, I think you should spend some time studying these scriptures. You should come to your own conclusion. I would, again, just try to steer you away from view number one because I don't think it's uh, it's rooted in, in Scripture. So just again, to recap the three uh, most common views of Jesus' descent into hell, the first one is that Jesus actually went to hell, the place of eternal torment suffered uh, for us. Again, a lot of Catholics believe that. A lot of hyper-charismatics would, would fall into this camp. I believe you should reject that view because there's no biblical basis for it. Number two, that Jesus endured hell metaphorically on the cross when the Father turned his face from him, and he experienced in that moment the same thing you and I would experience if we were literally in hell. A lot of scriptural support for that. You would be fine to believe that. That's probably the most common view in even churches around Asheville if you were to go there and ask the pastors probably what they would believe. And then the, the third view, again, a more ancient view, the one that the, most of the church fathers seem to hold to, uh, is that Jesus descended to the place of the dead, right? To, to Hades, to declare his victory over sin, death, and hell, right? Either of the last two, biblical basis. Again, you study, come to your own conclusion. The point of it is this, right? And this is the big idea of the whole message. This will be on the screens for you. The point is this. Jesus is king over every realm. Jesus is king over every realm. That's, this is why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Listen to this. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, I would argue the underworld, the place of the dead, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, y'all, Jesus is king in heaven. He is king on earth. He is king under the earth. There is no place where our Savior does not rule and reign. Now, here's what that means for you practically, Christian. You have nothing to fear in life or death. Your risen king has walked the path of darkness and death before you, and his victory is now your victory. Jesus descended into death. That much is clear, but here's the best news of all. This is the second half of our line in the creed today. It says, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. See, our Savior didn't just suffer for us. He didn't just die for us. He, he didn't just descend into darkness and proclaim victory over us. He walked out of that tomb three days later, just like he promised he would, and he now offers us his resurrected life in this life and into eternity. If you have a Bible, go to John chapter 20. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time. John chapter 20. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, either in print or on your device, this will be on the screens for you. This is the Apostle John, uh, likely Jesus' best friend, closest friend. And this is his account of Sunday morning, right? So we had, we had the resurrection, oh, we, sorry, we had the, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus on Good Friday. We have the descent uh, through Saturday. And this is kind of part three of the, the trilogy of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, starting in verse 1, chapter 20. John writes this. Now on the first day of the week, that's, that's Sunday, if you didn't know, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Uh-oh. 
That's our, our first sign. Something is, is off. Something is, is not normal or right. Verse 2. So she uh, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. By the way, this is how John refers to himself. I love the fact that this is the identity John took for himself. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. And I would just, listen, I would argue if you're in Christ, you should totally steal this identity. I am the disciple who Jesus loves. I don't think John would bind it off. You take that identity for yourself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, right? And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You can't tell me these guys don't have a sense of humor. He wants you to know he's faster than Peter, right? That's important to him for some reason. It's recorded for all of history. <laughs> you just picture Peter when he sees this for the first time. He's like, son of a gun. Did you seriously put that in there, right? Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, because remember, he's a little bit slower, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen, tooth, the, the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, just in case you forgot in the last 30 seconds, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Now this is, this is kind of shocking, right? They were with Jesus for three plus years. They heard him teach. They heard him preach. They saw him do miracle after miracle, raise people from the dead. They heard him predict his own death and resurrection. And yet at the moment that all this is going down, they don't get it. Right? And part of this is because they know, back 2,000 years ago, just what we know today, that dead people typically don't come back from the dead. They're not expecting a resurrection. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, supposing him to be the gardener, and again, this has got to be the worst case of mistaken identity in history, right? Now, we're going we're to give Mary a little bit of grace because it's, it's early in the morning, still dark, she's crying, so vision's a little bit blurry. Plus, you don't expect to see someone that you just saw die Friday night alive in a garden uh, Sunday morning, right? So we're going to give her a little bit of grace. She sees Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. And she says to him, Sir, if you, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now what was that moment like? When she heard the voice of her resurrected Savior, and she recognized his voice. Amazing. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's a term, of, a term of endearment. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And by the way, I think this is a good argument for our third view that we looked at. Jesus just said, I have not yet ascended to the Father. And so some, for those who would say, Well, after Jesus died on the cross, he went to heaven to be with the Father. Well, that contradicts what Jesus just says right here, right? He says, Don't cling to me, Mary, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. That's actually next week's sermon. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now listen, guys, I could, I could easily spend the next hour talking about just the historical evidences 
and kind of do an apologetic sermon. I'm not going to do that today. We've done that in the past, uh, especially uh, Easter Sundays. You can go grab those uh, on the website if you want to do a, a deeper apologetic style. All I want to do this morning is give you two implications of the resurrection. Two implications of the re- resurrection. Now listen, if you're here, you're watching online, you're not a Christian, and I know we have every week we have people that are on the fence, they're exploring, uh, you're a seeker, maybe you're here because your mom wants you here, or your wife drug you, or whatever it is. Uh, I- I'm glad you're here, but my hope is if you're here, you're not a Christian, that, that what we're about to talk about, these truths will compel you to consider Jesus and his claims. I don't think it's an accident that you're here uh, this Sunday or watching online this Sunday this message. I believe this is, this is a time that the Lord has ordained to speak to your heart if you're not yet in Christ. Now, if you're here, you're already team Jesus, you're, you're, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, my hope for you is that these truths will breathe just kind of a, a fresh sense of hope and joy into your journey with Jesus, right? So, so two implications. The resurrection, re- resurrection means two things. Number one, it means this. Jesus is who he said he was. Now, listen, Jesus... Jesus made a lot of outlandish claims about himself while walking on planet Earth, did he not? He claimed to be God, right? Before Abraham was, I am, right? A, a clear claim to divinity. He claimed to be God. He said he would, he would, he would die and rise again, right? He said, hey, listen, I'm going I'm to tear down the temple, and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. A claim to, to dying and rising three days later. Just like Jonah went into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so I will go into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights before I rise. He claimed to be living water. Hey, listen, if you drink of this water, everlasting water, you'll never thirst again. You'll live forever. Crazy claims. He claimed to be the only pathway to God the Father. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He was always saying crazy, provocative things. Look, guys, you don't get nailed to a Roman cross because you walk around petting puppies and telling people how awesome they are. That's not, that's not, that's not how, how it happens. He made outrageous claim after outrageous claim about who he was and why he came, and then he backed it up in the most spectacular way possible. He walked right out of that tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, just like he said he would. Now, now I, want, I, want you to, I want you to listen to this, guys. All, all his detractors had to do to absolutely squash the Christian movement, which exploded, whether it's the Roman government, Jewish Pharisees, Greek pagans, all any of them had to do was produce a, bo- a body, and the whole thing would have been over. They never produced a body. Do you know why? There was nobody to produce because Jesus conquered death and he walked out of that grave and he is alive today, ruling and reigning over every realm. That's truth number one, application number one. Here's the second one. The second thing the resurrection means is that the new creation has already begun. Now, we started uh, our, our series in Genesis, right? We went back and looked at Genesis 1 through 3. We talked about Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They, they choose sin. They choose their way over God's way. All hope seems lost in Genesis 3. And then God makes a, a promise in Genesis 3.15, right? That one day, one of Eve's descendants would rise and crush the head of the serpent, our enemy, the evil one, Satan, right? And then all of the Old Testament prophets, they're just like on repeat. Their message is like, hey, there's, there's a Savior, there's a Messiah, there's one who's going to come. Uh, he's going to right all wrongs. He's going to make all things new, right? This, this is the promise, isn't it, of the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus is going to return. He's going to restore Eden. 
Now, here, here's the, the really cool thing uh, about the new creation. If you kind of follow the, the biblical arc of the, the narrative of, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, is that this new creation, according to Scripture, starts with us followers of Jesus. That we, we are literally the first fruits of this new world. I want you to watch what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We're the very first thing that Jesus is making new in his new kingdom. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christian, we are agents of the new creation. We are children of the resurrection. Our lives ought to be outposts of the new creation to the world around us. In a very real sense, we are a picture of the future invading the present, giving the world around us a taste of the coming kingdom of our King. In us, in our lives, they ought to be getting a glimpse of the King who will one day come, maybe soon, to wipe away every tear, to restore all that's been lost, to abolish all pain and all suffering and all death forever, who will right every wrong and make everything sad come untrue. Isn't this our task as followers of Jesus to be salt and light in a world that's decaying? In a world of death, we have the keys to abundant life through our resurrected king. I love the words of a Canadian scientist, G.B. Hardy. His quote will be on the screens for you. He writes this, When I, when I looked at religion, I said, I have, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? That's a, that's a good question. That's a fair question, one that you and I uh, ought to ask, I think. He goes on to say, I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And then I asked my second question, did he make a way for me to do it also? And then I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, you shall live also. I want to close with these words from Jesus as the band comes back up. This is found in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 17 and 18, and Jesus says this, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Savior, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. He descended to hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Church, in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Do you not understand that he has defeated your sin? He has conquered your death. He has crushed your enemy underneath his feet. Our Savior descended, but he rose three days later, and abundant life is ours in him. To God be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray and then we're going to worship. God, thank you for reminding us through these ancient words that your only son, our only savior, King Jesus is king over every realm. He is king in heaven. He is king on earth. He is king under the earth. And the reality is one day every knee in heaven, on earth, under the earth, will bow the knee to King Jesus and confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you because you rule and reign in every realm, in every place, in every time. 
that for those of us who know you, follow you, we have freedom to live life outside of fear. That even death itself poses no ultimate danger to the life of a born-again son or daughter of the king of this universe, God. Thank you that you rule and reign over every realm, God. Would you remind us that as you make everything new and you begin to make all things right, that that starts, that new creation starts with us. That our call is to be salt and light. We're to be outposts of the new kingdom of the coming king that in us people should get a glimpse, they should get a taste of the king who is coming to truly wipe away every tear, to do away with all suffering and death forever and ever. God, help us be a picture. Help us be a mile marker. Help us be a signpost to a world that's flooded with decay and confusion and death to the beauty of Jesus and his coming kingdom. And Father, I ask if there's anybody here in the room this morning, I ask if there's anybody watching online that would just have to be honest enough to confess, man, like I don't, I don't know, I don't know this king. Like I've heard about Jesus, maybe I know some, some facts about him, but I, I don't, I don't have a relationship with this risen king who suffered to pay for my sin, to make me right with God who descended into death, who rose again on the third day, who lives even now, rules and reigns and intercedes on our behalf before the throne of the Father. I pray, God, for that person, for those people maybe here, maybe online, that would have to confess, man, I, I don't have that. I don't know him. That even right now in this moment that your Holy Spirit would begin to draw their hearts, that you would begin to woo them to you, that you would open up the curtains of heaven and just give them a small glimpse of the beauty that is Jesus that they would stand in awe of the king of the universe his coming kingdom and I pray that you'd give them the courage just to pray out and begin that step of faith today say God I want to turn from my sin I want to find my hope and my life in Jesus I want to know him so to the best of my ability, I give my life to you right now. Jesus, would you send your Holy Spirit to live inside of me, to guide me, to direct me in life? God, we thank you so much that you came, that you lived the perfect life that we needed to live, but we couldn't because we're sinners, that you died an atoning death to pay for our sins, and that you rose again on the third day to give us life now and into eternity. God, we could never thank you enough. We praise you in the strong and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand with me as we get ready to recite the creed together? As always, if you're here, uh, you're not a follower of Jesus, don't feel compelled to recite this. You can just look at it on the screen, but I would encourage you again, if you're, if you're in, if you're team Jesus, if you believe what we've been talking about, I want to encourage you to say this out loud like you mean it. On the count of three, let's go. One, two, three. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's worship him.